This is what you get when your pastor's a product of the 80s. Oh, let's have them back. So great to have you with us. So great to be with you, all of you who are online as well. Uh, quick question for you that'll make some sense of what you just saw and heard. Have you ever uh, opened the Bible at any point ever, read the Bible and read something and thought to yourself, what in the world is going on here? Ever read a story and be like, what does this mean? Ever read one and be like, I can't believe that's in the Bible. It shouldn't be in the Bible. If you haven't read that, you, there's a lot of crazy stuff in there that you owe it to yourself to find. Well, um, I've noticed that that's a lot of story. That's kind of my story. And one of my passions is to make the Bible make sense and, and, and even more importantly, make the Bible practical, applicable. And, um, and, and if you read the, the New Testament, it's kind of like instructions. You're like, okay, I got it. But then you read the Old Testament, it's like, what? <laughs> the, 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 they kill the pigeon and they put them on the thing, but it's too earth. Like, what's going on? And so um, what's interesting is that the whole Bible is, is just points to one, really one thing, and it's the story of Jesus. And, um, and I've been studying, journeying, if you will. Uh, yeah, I'll be here all week. Um, <laughs> the Old Testament, I'm a big fan of the Old Testament. The Old Testament has a lot of stories, but um, uh, over the, the years, I've put together something that I think has helped me make sense and helped a lot of others make sense. I've actually been teaching this for a long time. I've been sitting on this uh, for six years since I've been your pastor. And so I'm really excited because over the next five weeks, we're going to journey through the Old Testament. Uh, and so we're going to embrace all things journey. We're going to embrace the 80s, permission to dig some stuff out and, and dust some things off. I'm just saying um, we have a lot of really fun things planned in the next five weeks. Uh, hopefully it's uh, something that you want, won't want to miss and bring somebody uh, along with. Uh, and so um, we're going to uh, not just journey through the Old Testament, but there is actually a meta narrative. Um, there is a bigger 30,000 foot view story where there's kind of everything else supports it. And so tip, uh, there's actually five stories, five geographic locations, five times where something really, really important happens. And if you understand these five stories and these five times, it actually tells the whole story of the Old Testament. You see this big giant loop. It leads right to Jesus and makes sense of everything else. And if you get this, anything else you read is kind of supplemental to go, oh, that's after this or that's before this or that's during that time. And so that's what we're going to do over the next five weeks. And we're going to look at those specific places. And so every single one of them um, focuses on a specific geographic location. And typically when I teach that, um, that's the name of the sermon. But it just so happens that my favorite band of all time, Rock Band Journey, has songs that perfectly fit my messages. So my sermon titles will not be biblical geographic locations, but they will be Journey songs, greatest hits from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And so um, the title of the message today is the song you just heard, which is separate ways. Uh, and so separate ways, we're going to talk about uh, where this whole thing starts. And so we're going to tell this story, and I'm so excited. I'm, I'm going to have the Bible Project uh, visually help me tell the story, because I really, really think for, for a lot of people, the biggest thing I hear all the time, I just can't make sense of the Bible. I believe in five weeks, that will not be your story if you stick with us for five weeks, and you'll be more excited to even read the other stuff that, that doesn't exactly make sense. Im important to understand, the Bible has 40 different authors. The Bible is not a history book, and the Bible is not linear or chronological. And so when you understand that, it helps you. But what we're going to do is go chronological through the story and tell the meta narrative of the journey of God with his people. And this story starts where every other story starts. And I could spend 12 weeks on what I'm going to cover today, uh, but because there's so much important things where we're going to start. And this story starts where every story starts, which is where? The beginning. 
The first two sentences of this book are so absolutely loaded that you could unpack it for days and days and days. And you have to understand when the Bible was written by ancient writers, they didn't just write literally, but they would intentionally put words, word series, patterns. You were, you were, as a reader, you wouldn't just go, what does it say? But you're looking for patterns. You're looking for connections. You're looking for other things beyond just the literal narrative. And so I want to help us with this. And so let's unpack, let's start right where the story starts. And it goes like this. If you were to open it up and start reading, you'll read something along the lines that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless, empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, there's a ton there. I've taught this in depth, but I just, here's a couple of things that we have to understand. And I cannot overstate the importance of understanding what we're going to cover today, because what we're going to cover today, you're literally going to see that pattern, that story, that narrative through the other 66 books that you read from the Old Testament, New Testament, and all this stuff. And so we have a few things that we owe it to ourselves to make an observation of. Uh, number one, in, in the very first sentence, in the beginning, God created so we have to understand that there is a force, an energy, an architect, uh, Yahweh, uh, an Adonai, whatever you want to call him, that literally created everything. That takes his authority, takes his energy, creates. We also have to understand that it didn't start always with what we have. And so it says he created it all, but it says that it started formless, empty, dark, um, uh, the void, a lot of versions use. And so we have to understand that that is a picture of disorder. It is a picture of dysfunction. It is a, porter, a, 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 a picture of non-existence. It is a picture of chaos. And it says that he took darkness and started there. And then he's going to roll out what he does with the darkness. And so three things we have to understand. God created everything. It started with darkness and chaos, but even in the beginning, his spirit was right there in the middle of the darkness and the chaos. This, this is uh, so important because if you understand, like you understand from the beginning, the journey of God is what does God do? He hovers over chaos and darkness. He hovers over non-existence and dysfunction. He, wherever there's lack, wherever there's something that's missing, he hovers there. And what does he do with it? That's where I'm going to let the Bible Project tell you that story. The first book in the Bible is called Genesis. And we're going to look closely at the first page of the book of Genesis. It's a carefully crafted narrative about God creating and ordering the whole cosmos. Okay, let's check it out. Now, the opening line of the whole Bible is, In the beginning, God created the skies and the land. Now, your Bible translation might say, the heavens and the earth. In biblical Hebrew, the word for heaven refers simply to the sky above. And the word for earth does not mean globe, but rather the land. The ground below us. Right. This line is summarizing what's going to happen in the following narrative, which starts in the next line. And it reads, now the land was wild and waste. This phrase rhymes in Hebrew. The land was tohu vavohu, which means unordered and uninhabited. This is the ancient way of talking about the pre-creation state what we might call nothingness. For the biblical authors, non-existence means having no purpose and no order. And the next line uses another image to say the same thing. And darkness was on the face of the deep abyss. What's the deep abyss? Yeah, it's a dark, chaotic ocean. It's another common way the ancients described the non-reality that preceded creation. Now, 
Here's where things start to get interesting, because in the midst of those dark waters, God is present. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Hebrew word for God's Spirit is ruach, which can refer to wind or breath or God's invisible presence. So you can't see it, but God is present in the darkness, ready to bring order so that life can flourish. Yes, and this ordering happens in a series of six days. Each day begins with the phrase, and God said, and then ends with the phrase, and there was evening and morning. Yeah, every day addresses those problems introduced in verse 2, that there's no order and no inhabitants. So on days 1 through 3, God splits apart that unordered darkness into three ordered realms. Then on days 4 through 6, God fills the uninhabited wasteland with creatures. Interesting. Let's see how that works. Okay. So the first realm of order begins with light on day one. Ah, yes. Let there be light. This is God's own glorious light that fills and contains the darkness as he separates day from night. God's establishing the order of time. Okay. And then on day two, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. What's the vault? In the ancient culture of the biblical authors, the sky was perceived as a solid dome that holds back waters. God's depicted here as splitting the chaos waters in half, above and below, which creates the realms of the sky and the seas. And then on day three, let the waters under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. God is establishing the realm of the land and it emerges out of the chaotic waters. And then there's a bonus creative act on day three. God invites plants and fruit trees with seed to emerge out of the land. Okay, so we've got the realms of time, the realm of the sky and the seas, and the land. And they all have order. Right. Now, it's time to go back and fill these realms of days one through three with inhabitants. This is what happens on days four through six. So in day four, let there be lights in the vaults of the sky. God installs these lights, the sun, moon, and stars, as signs and symbols that reflect God's own light. He gives them his own royal power to separate day and night. Then on day five, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the land. Yeah, these are the creatures that live in the waters below and those that fly near the waters above. Then finally on day six, let the land produce living creatures. They emerge up out of the ground to live on the land. And then matching that bonus act of creation on day three, God makes a special land creature, human, or in Hebrew, Adam. So this is so important. In the beginning, who's the one with all the power and all the authority? God, God, who's in charge? God, and he, what does he do? He takes his power, takes his authority, and he asserts it and asserts it into chaos, into darkness. Why? For what purpose? To bring life that will flourish. This is the description of God. I, this, is, this is to me what makes this so appealing. What it, tell me about your God. Oh, he's the ultimate power. He's the ultimate authority. And he exercises that power and authority. And he constantly is looking for chaos and darkness and emptiness so that he can do his thing and create light and life that will flourish. He takes darkness and brings light. He takes emptiness and fills it up. He takes void and, and completes it. He does. That's what he does. How does he do it? Well, that's what the story is about. And so what you have to understand is that's what God is. And so God takes chaos and brings order. Why would you give your life to God? Because he takes my chaos and he makes it order. 
He takes my death and he makes it life. He takes my void and he, he fills it. And so uh, again, there's so much of that. Now you have to ask yourself, how does he do it? This is also so important. Again, ancient readers would have known to look for this, that um, again, those six days of creation aren't necessarily chronological, but there's an intentional pattern in there that again, God, the author would want you to know, as I tell this story, if you look for this, you're gonna see it throughout your life and you're gonna see it throughout the story. So the next 66 books are all about a God who takes his power and authority, inserts it into chaos, and he brings life and he brings freedom. How does he do it? Ah, that's in, Gen that's in days one through six. Because if you notice, there's intentionally days one through three and days four through six. What does he do in days one through three? Ancient writers would have categorized it as preparation and separation. Somebody say preparation. preparation. Somebody say separation. separation. What does this mean? He had to take day from night. He had to take sky from Earth. He had to take ground from water. Why? Because he had a grand vision to make it full of life, fulfilled, but there had to be somewhere to put it. Come on, somebody. And so he first had to create space because he already had a vision of birds and, and cows and alligators and dinosaurs and humans and trees and mountains. But he's like, we got to have a place to put it. And so he prep prepares it and then separates. It. And then what's days four through six? Let's load it up, right? Let's fill up the waters. Let's fill up the sky. Let's fill up the sky. Let's fill the land. Let's put vegetation. And so we see the second pattern is completion and filling. Somebody say completion. completion. Somebody say filling. filling. This is so important because in, in any story and in your story, if you want to know what's God up to, well, I'll tell you what he's up to. He wants to find any sort of chaos and darkness and he wants to bring life that will flourish. How's he going to do it though? Ah, it's right there in the first page. He's going to have a season first where he's probably going to separate some things. He's going to prepare some things. He's going to prepare your character. He may separate you from some toxic relationships. He may have you move out of some things or into some things. He may have a, a, a time when you're single so you can build the emotional health and capacity to not only like yourself, but to carry somebody else's burden so that when you say I do, it's not just two train wrecks heading towards each other. Amen. And so... So, I, so many young adults, free advice, there's a lot of you in here watching, that I know they're like, I want to be in a relationship. And when they get serious, they're like, God, I want to have a great relationship. Almost always the first thing he's like, okay, then you're going to be single for a minute. That's not what I said. <laughs> Why? He's like, oh, we got to separate and prepare some stuff because I'm going to complete it. I'm going to fill it and it will be good. But if, like God would have done, if he would have just started throwing alligators and birds and fish and trees everywhere, but there was no land for them to land on, there was no sea for them to swim in, there was no sky for them to fly in, that would be more what? Chaos. God doesn't do chaos. He just takes chaos and flips it on its head. And so if you would be willing to allow God into your life, that's always what he's going to do. Take any amount of chaos, take any amount of disorder, and he's going to bring order. And all the ancient readers knew it, and that's the appeal. Like our God, who our God is is right here on page one, and so that's it. So that's what we see. So again, you can apply that. You know, the relationship you want, the career you want, the dream you have, if it honors God, he's probably like, let's do it. But first, we're going to separate and prepare some things because we got to make sure there's room for it because we don't want to create more chaos by going, let's just, oh, we'll just figure it out. That rarely works out. And then at the end, he goes on, I'm going to fill it. And then the last thing he does is our story. There's more. It says at the end, after he's filled it up, and then he says, puts humans in. And verse chapter, I'm sorry, chapter one, verse 26, it says, then God said, now let us make man in our image and in our likeness so that they may what? Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and the wild animals and over all of the creatures that move along the ground. 
Now, over and over, God says what he created was good. But then after making humans, God says that it is very good. Yes, humanity is the climax of days one through six, and their importance is explained in the first poem in the Bible. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So humans come up from the ground like the other land creatures, but they're also more. They're God's image, which means that together, men and women embody and represent the creator within his creation. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, ruling over the creatures. This is the purpose of being God's image, to oversee creation as God's partners and representatives in the world. Did you get that? We're his partners and his representatives in the world. What did he do? He said he wants us to rule. Ah, but watch this. What does he want us to rule over? Creation, not each other. He said, help me make my world better. And so it says we are literally humans, are gods. This is so brilliant and beautiful. I, I just, every time I teach, study, read it, I just have a greater and deeper appreciation for it. We are his physical representation. We are the physical representation of the original architect in the architect's design. Isn't that brilliant? And so we represent God's own self. We represent God's authority. We represent God's power. How do I know that? Because he said, you're like me. Now rule like I would. Ah, and here's where it gets. So just to summarize, where have we been so far? There's not a test. Well, there kind of is. It's called your life. So I want you to understand this. <laughs> what does God do with his power and authority? He asserts it over chaos and darkness to bring life that will flourish, correct? And, and then how does he do it? He creates his own image bearers and puts them in. He goes, now you're my ambassadors. Now you're my representatives. You're supposed to be like me. We're gonna do this together. I wanna exist with you and I want you to exist with me and we will co-labor and co-lead and co-rule together. And as long as you trust me in my way and we do this, it's gonna be amazing. But you don't have to. <laughs> and so what are our instructions? We see, if you go to Genesis chapter two, which is kind of a commentary of Genesis one, we see what is the main function and the main mission of humanity, of humans in God's beautiful world as his representative. Genesis two fifteen says, and the Lord God took man and put him in the garden Eden to work it. Work it, girl. That's not that kind of work it, actually. It's a different kind. <laughs> to work it and take care of it. This is before anything has gone wrong. So work is not a byproduct of sin. <laughs> There's a couple generations I'm going to repeat that for. <laughs> work is not a byproduct of sin. <laughs> work hurting is. <laughs> and that's Genesis 3. And so he says, he, we're to co-labor. He says, I want you to take what I have and I want you to work it, manicure it, and produce more. I love what Spurgeon says. Uh, in his commentary, Charles Spurgeon says, there was to be occupation for man, even in paradise. Just as they who, had, who are before the throne of God in glory serve him day and night in his temple, idleness gives no joy, but holy employment will add uh, to the bliss of heaven. And so the, then now we have the rub. How will humans exercise the authority and power they've been given to take care of God's good world. And so this idea of work and take care of it is, imagine somebody who has a plot or a garden, right? If you plant seeds and have good ground and you don't do anything with it, what's gonna happen? Are some seeds gonna grow? Sure. Are you gonna get some fruit? Sure. Are other things gonna grow? Weeds. Are you gonna get the most out of what you could? No, but if you work it and take care of it, you can mitigate the weeds, you can increase the, 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 the ground and you can make a greater crop and a greater fruit and a greater like production, right? 
That's literally what God's saying. He's like, this is going to grow, but it'll go better. I want you to work it. I want you to take care of it. I want you to add. And so our job description in his world is the same thing he did in chapter one. And so he brings order to life. And so, we, so his instruction to us is when you go into a new space, be like me. Use your creativity, your expertise, your education, your perspective. And I want you to enhance any environment I've put you in and make it better. And so this is what we've done for 6,000 years of human history. We go in and we remake and innovate environments. This is how we came up with things like the pyramids and the Eiffel Tower and cities and airplanes and trains and automobiles, all the stuff. We did, we did that. We did it. We're awesome. Because it was just a bunch of seeds that somehow we took the, the raw materials of the world and we're like, we'll defy gravity and fly across the globe in like 12 hours. We'll put them on steamies and we'll go through train tracks and we'll, we'll build giant buildings and we'll, whatever the case, we'll build these pyramids and they'll never be able to figure out how we did it. <laughs> we did that with what? The potential that God put. He put so much potential in his world to be harnessed and he put so much potential in you to be harnessed if we will allow him to run his play, run his plan in our life. No other creation does that. Gorillas aren't doing that. They're just scratching themselves. <laughs> Elephants aren't creating planes. They're not figuring out how a way to get us across land quicker. And so you could ask, how, how does God exercise all of his power and authority into his world? Through us, through humans. That was his plan. He's like, now go be me, go be like me, do it. And so God is so overjoyed. And this is such a great part of the story of what he created that he wanted to share his existence with us. He's like, let's do this together. Let's partner. I want to be a part of it. He creates this beautiful environment of life and beauty and existence. And he wants us to be a part of it. And, and he wants us as humans to mimic him in his creation. And that's what Genesis is all about. And so that's what leads us to the rest of the story. Now, after the six days, we get a concluding line that links back to the key words of the opening line. And so were completed the skies and the land and all their inhabitants. Except there's one more day. It stands outside the pattern of days one through six. It's the big climax. And God completed on the seventh day the work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and set it apart as holy so God rests on the seventh day. This is a standard biblical image where God, after ordering the cosmos, comes to rest and dwell in his sacred space. It's like the whole world is a holy temple where God lives with his people. Now that phrase, there was evening and morning, it doesn't appear on day seven. That's right. The seventh day has no end. That's because Genesis 1 is describing God's ideal vision for the whole cosmos a place where God lives with his partners to rule the world in harmony forever. So here's the cool part. According to the story, day seven never ends. So we're living in day seven. Day seven is God stopped creating potential and now he's gonna co-labor with his creation to harness the potential and continue to create, make life that flourishes. So we are in day seven now with God. And he's like, let's rule and let's do this together. But here's the whole caveat. Here's the tension, the dun-dun-dun plot thickens. God wanted to make sure that this thing was based on love. And love requires a choice and free will. And so he was never going to force us to love him. He was never going to force us to, to follow him. He was never going to force us to choose him or trust him. And so we have this ability, and we see it in the garden, to trust him or to seize our own autonomy and define good and evil our own way. That's what the trees are about. 
And so now we have this choice. The, the, the climax of the story, the, the, the turning point of the story is how will humans exercise the free will they've been given that goes along with the power, authority, and potential, and character, and all of those things. And that is what gets us to where we are now. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world, and they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf which in context means to harness all of its potential, to care for it, and make it a place where even more life can flourish. God blesses the humans. It's a key word in this book. And he gives them a garden. It's like a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. Now, the key is that the humans have a choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. But now God is giving the humans the dignity and the freedom of a choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil, or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And the stakes are really high. To rebel against God is to embrace death because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. This is represented by the tree of life. And so in chapter 3, a mysterious figure, a snake, enters into the story. The snake's given no introduction other than it's a creature that God made. And it becomes clear that it's a creature in rebellion against God, and it wants to lead the humans into rebellion and their death. The snake tells a different story about the tree and the choice. It says that seizing the knowledge of good and evil are not going to bring death, that it's actually the way to life and becoming like God themselves. Now, the irony of this is tragic because we know the humans, they're already like God. They were made to reflect God's image. But instead of trusting God, the humans seize autonomy. They take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves, and in an instant, the whole story spirals out of control. The first casualty is human relationships. The man and the woman, they suddenly realize how vulnerable they are now. They can't even trust each other. And so they make clothes and they hide their bodies from one another. The second casualty is that intimacy between God and the humans is lost. So they go and run and hide from God. And then when God finds them, they start this game of blame shifting about who rebelled first. Now, right here, the story stops. And there's a series of short poems where God declares to the snake and then to the humans the tragic consequences of their actions. God first tells the snake that despite its apparent victory, it is destined for defeat to eat dust. God promises that one day a seed or a descendant will come from the woman who's going to deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head, which sounds like great news, but this victory is going to come with a cost because the snake too will deliver a lethal strike to the descendant's heel as it's being crushed. It's a very mysterious promise of this wounded victor. But in the flow of the story so far, you see this is an act of God's grace. The humans, they've just rebelled. And what does God do? He promises to rescue them. But this doesn't erase the consequences of the human's decision. So God informs them that now every aspect of their life together at home and out in the field, it's going to be fraught with grief and pain because of the rebellion, all leading to their death. And so, how long does the garden last? <laughs> two pages. We made it two pages. And after two pages, we're like, I have a better idea. And that's basically the story of humanity. Yeah, 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 God, that sounds nice, but I have a better idea. 
I think I know what's best for me. You know what? I don't love your definitions of good and evil. I want to redefine good and evil for myself. And so the question throughout humanity and what this faith journey is all about is will I continue? Will I trust that God knows how best to do this thing called life? What is good for me? What is good for the people in my world? And here's what's interesting. When you follow it and you read it, God's definition of good and evil isn't just good for me, but when I do what's good for me according to him, it actually is good for all of the people in my life. And notoriously throughout humanity, the reason we have wars is because when we decide what's good for us, it usually comes at the expense of them and their tribe. And, where, and them changes every time. And cha- them can be different nationality, different ethnicity, different generation, different social structure. But we are horrible historically at defining good and evil because we have no way to comprehend how to make this whole thing work. So, so the, the tree represents a choice. And here's the question that you're going to see played out throughout the Bible. But here's the question you have to answer in your own life. Will I use any power, any education, any experience, any resources, any authority I have? And will I go into God's good world and will I enhance it and work the ground and make it better? Will I trust his definitions? Or am I going to leverage everything I just said? My power, my authority, my resources, because after all, I've earned it and I've worked hard and I'm going to build my life. Am I going to build my kingdom? Am I going to build my own world? Am I going to build my empire regardless of how it affects you or anybody else in my life? That is the ultimate question in the garden. It is the question that we see played out throughout the Bible. It is the question that we're gonna see the the people of God on both the wrong and the right side of the social construct throughout the Bible narrative that we're gonna cover. But it's also our story as well. Because here's what I'll tell you, to trust his way is more self-sacrificial but it's better. And not only do you win, but everybody in your life wins. But usually when I trust my way, it's typically easier for a minute. But unfortunately, usually only I win, which means you have to lose. And we find ourselves saying something around here all the time is like, let's just all win together. Do you know where we got that idea? The architect. It doesn't have to be either or in the kingdom of God. And so they disobey. And God, out of his grace, basically says, you can't stay in the garden anymore. Uh, it's interesting. You need to know this about God. When the, uh, immediately when they ate from the fruit, God's response was not to hunt them down and give them the you ought to know better speech. He didn't give them the why I ought to hand. Do you know what his question was? Where'd you go? We used to have a thing. And now you're running. You never used to run. Now you run. And their answer was, we're ashamed. See, shame is an unavoidable consequence of not trusting God's way. And shame will always lead to blame, and then that leads to a bunch of other ugliness. But you can know that shame and blame are coming when you do it your way. And so he chased them down. And then you know what he did? He covered their nakedness. He covered their mistakes. Well, that's what Jesus did at the cross. Yes, he did. He also did in the garden. His first act was to hunt them down and cover them, not hunt them down and to get them what for. And some of us grew up in a church environment where all we were told was God's just ready to give you what for. I don't read that. He chases after, he leaves the 99 to go get the one. He runs through the garden and he's like, where did you go? We used to walk, we used to talk. Why did you feel like you need to hide from me? We ate the tree, let me cover you. And then he does, and then there is a consequence. He's like, okay, so I got some bad news. We can't stay here anymore. You can't eat this tree of life and live forever now in this state because now you know death and that's not gonna work. It's like, we gotta go. But he says, You don't gotta go by yourself. I'm gonna go with you. That's what the next four weeks are about. Or as it says in the song, Separate Ways by Journey. If you must go, I wish you luck, but you'll never walk alone. 
And so there's this promise that even though we've leveraged what he gave us for our own gain and severed our relationship with each other and severed our relationship with him, that every time we trust and every time we invite him in, that he's going to do, what was the first thing he did on the second sentence? Oh, he hovers over chaos and asserts his authority and power. And he takes chaos and he brings light and life that will flourish. Even when we're the ones who create our own chaos. That's what your God is like. That's what your author is like. That's what your architect is like. That is what the creator and lover of your soul is like. So now the question that you have is the same question they had in the garden is, am I going to do it his way or am I going to do it my way? And some of you, this is hopefully the best news you've ever heard because if you were to give your life a title right now, this season, it would be chaos and darkness. Well, guess what? If that's the case, I have really good news for you. God, since the beginning of time, takes everything he has and he inserts it into chaos and darkness whenever he's welcomed. And through a process of separation and, and preparation and completion and filling, he takes chaos and darkness and emptiness and void and depression and anxiety and hurt and confusion and turmoil. And he brings life and joy and peace and purpose. And he puts things together like no one else can. And it won't happen fast enough. He's always late. He is, according to me. But if you trust him and you resist your urge to be like, I got it, I got it, I know. He's like, no, 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 that's how we got here. And you place your whole life, your whole life, your whole life in his hands. This is the same pattern you're gonna see throughout history, throughout the Bible, that God takes his power and authority, hovers over chaos and asserts it in the middle of it. And he creates life and light that will flourish. And he did it in Genesis and he does it in the Old Testament and he did it through Jesus and he did it in the New Testament and he's done it in so many people's lives and he'll do it in your life. If you will relinquish control and go, I want to be on the right side of this thing. So in summary, God creates a perfect world. He made his representatives with free will. They messed it up on page two, introducing shame, blame, and turmoil. And while he banished humans from the garden, he also went with them, enacting a new plan of rescue, restoration, and redemption, also identity and purpose, and dwelling in his creation to make his good world originally how he created it. And somehow, somehow he has the ability to take our brokenness and still get his plan and his will out of it. Again, to anyone who would open their heart and their minds, their life to God. It's as the song, Separate Ways Goes. Someday, love will find you and break those chains that bind you. Journey had no idea how dead on they were when they wrote those lyrics. That they were literally just mimicking their creator. That if you will make room, someday, love will find you. And whatever has you down, it'll break those chains that bind you. And so the rest of the story is about how a perfect God turned over his perfect world to his image bearers and yet decided to go with them. And in light of and in spite of our own brokenness and our own free will, sometime, somehow he still has the ability to make the way and the world the way he originally created it to be. And so in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our brokenness, he goes with you. He's wherever there's chaos in your life, wherever there's darkness, he's hovering. And he's just waiting for you to invite and say, I I'm ready to give this over to you. I need life again in this area. He'll speak to you. He'll guide you. He'll walk with you if you make room for him. And he'll draw us back to the way we were created to live. Even if you've done everything the opposite the way you're supposed to, even if the whole mess that you're in was completely your fault, he never doesn't hover over chaos. And he never, ever leaves it that way when he's allowed to have his way in your life. So whoever submits to God, good things eventually come of it. And so I think there's some of us this week, that's what we need. Some of us are here, that's what you need. I'm in a mess. I got darkness. I got emptiness. I got chaos. 
guess what? If that's true, God's literally right there going like, just you let me know when it's my turn. And he'll come in and do what he's done throughout history. And he'll bring light and he'll bring life. And it may not look the way you want it to do. And it may not go on the timeline you want it to. But if you will trust him and let him have his hands on it, he will do with it what no one else can, no one else could, and nothing else ever will. And so the invitation to us at the beginning of this story is will we trust the grand architect, the creator and lover of our soul, the God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to be the one to author our lives? And so maybe today you just need to take the pen out of your hand and give it back to the author. Maybe there's an area where you go, I've been, I've been giving most of it to God, but he hasn't been able to have my money or my relationships or my career, whatever it is, my kids. And it's an opportunity for you to go, God, where there's chaos, you're the only one that can make life. And so I wanna give it to you. And so I'd love to just pray for us, just for a moment. Maybe you need to ask God into your life for the first time. We have people that do that every weekend. Maybe it's a specific area. I just wanna pray and allow you, as, as I pray, an opportunity to reflect and, and even ask God to come in wherever there's chaos in your life as well. Heavenly Father, I thank you that even though we had to go separate ways in the garden, that you've never went separate ways from us. Your promise is to never leave us or forsake us. And so God, I pray for anybody here who has never put you in charge of their life, that has never allowed you to define right, wrong, good, evil, to map out identity, purpose, joy. I pray, God, that they would be compelled even at the hearing of this message and the, the seeing of this teaching to go, man, I, I, gotta have, I gotta have this. This is for me. God, for others of us who maybe are trusting you with some things, but there's areas of our life that are dark and chaotic, and it's mostly because we're doing it our way. God, we wanna resubmit to you. We wanna relinquish control and say, we trust that your way is best. God, I pray that over the next few weeks that you would dig deep into our hearts, deep into our lives. You would not only make sense of your word, but you would um, help us to apply it so that we can live out in this, in this world and live out in our lives what you have for us. Um, I thank you that, um, that you love us so much that no matter how far gone we feel, that you're always pursuing us waiting to bring life where we need it most. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.